Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week's episode is all about teams, the ones who build our products and support our customers. In a startup's earliest days, these teams are tight and nimble. They're innovative, they're autonomous, and they run into relatively few, if any, blockers on their way to building and testing new ideas. But as your startup grows, hires more people, builds more products, and ideally adds more customers, things are going to get infinitely more complex. So how do you keep, grow, and scale this early stage way of working? As today's guest, Don Price, will tell you, there's no silver bullet to the problem, but there are a series of methods to help set up your startup for success. Dom's the head of R&D and work futurist at Atlassian, where, in short, he travels around the globe watching how Atlassian teams work and visits with other teams across industries to share insights as well. Dom's seen Atlassian grow from 400 employees to north of 2,500 and with six global offices. In our chat, Dom talks about the risks facing teams as they scale. This idea of we're a certain size, therefore we need a certain amount of structure and certain ways of doing things. And, and it's where a lot of really successful companies become mediocre. When they were small, they took calculated risks, they became successful, and then they had something to lose, so they became conservative. The importance of cognitive diversity in high-performing teams. Great minds don't think alike. If you get like-minded people, you will get somewhere really quickly, but you won't want to be wherever you are. It, it will not be a nice place. And why friction in teams can be both good and bad. You get a designer, product manager, and engineer on a whiteboard, they will argue the hell out of each other because they see the world through their own lens. That's positive friction, and we call it sparring. There's then negative friction, which is bureaucracy. Process, sign-offs, business cases, all these things where you have to prove or substantiate what you're doing, and you spend more time justifying it than you spend doing it. If you like what you hear or want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And now, let's hop in the studio and talk teams with Dom Price. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Dom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I know you're in the middle of a long slew of North American travels, <laughs> so we appreciate the pit stop. But uh, welcome to San Francisco. Where are you uh, headed to after this? Uh, I've got a wonderful trip planned to Austin next week and then to New York and then San Jose uh, and back to New York before hitting uh, Sydney at the end of September. So a good four weeks in, in the U.S. Awesome. Awesome. Well, to give our listeners a little bit of context, then you've had a pretty interesting career trajectory mm. to date and that you're in consulting, then you're working in casino games, and now you're in collaboration software. <laughs> so walk us through how you got to where you are today. Uh, so I'm a recovering accountant. Uh, I was convinced by my parents and various family members when I was finishing university that if I wanted to have a job for life, I should go and become an accountant. So I am actually a chartered accountant. I've never practiced, thankfully. What I realized early on in accounting is kind of the nuances of business how everything kind of connects together and you pull one lever and this happens, you pull this lever and that happens. And so I was fascinated by how businesses actually work. And so throughout my uh, casino gaming time, that was around building slot machines uh, and slot games around the world, which was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and then I took that knowledge of building games on mass and basically a software product uh, and took that to Atlassian where I've got to see a, a company scale from tiny to, to large in a very short period of time. I'm sure there's a lot that you can learn in the world of casino games about stickiness, product stickiness that applies to software. There is there is an awful lot you can learn, an awful lot you want to unlearn. Exactly. <laughs> so um, today you are the head of R&D and work futurist at mm. Atlassian. What exactly does that role entail? 
Uh, it, it entails having the most random title in the world. Um, it entails two things. It, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a role I've not seen anywhere else, which is, I think, why I'm enjoying it so much. Half of it is internally focused in Atlassian. So how do we scale our teams? How do we stay awesome? How do we find better ways of working? As we grow, as we get more people, we get more complexity, more customers, more products. You know, we've got infinite amount of complexity in our business, and we don't want that to slow us down. So we want to stay small, nimble. autonomous, and nimble, right? Uh, not necessarily agile, but definitely autonomous and nimble and empowered. As we're learning ways of doing that in Atlassian, the other half of my time is going telling people how we do that and why and sharing it. Yeah, we, we don't believe that knowledge is power. We believe the, the application of knowledge is power. So we're giving away that knowledge for free and we want other teams to unleash their potential, find new ways of working. And then as I watch and observe and listen to the challenges they're suffering, I document all that and I take that back to Atlassian. So we can evolve our ways of working and then we can go and tell the story, learn from them and then bring it back in. So a very tight loop. So you're almost a courier running this information back and forth. Yeah, backwards. And it's fascinating because it's a never-ending courier, right? It's an infinite loop because there's no shortage of examples from companies, large, small, new, you know, old startups, established, you know, different industries. Every team is subtly different. The themes tend to be similar in terms of what they're challenging with, but every team is different. So I learn something new every single day, every single week. So take me back to when you joined Atlassian. My timeline is right. I think you guys were probably about 400 people. Yeah. Uh, maybe you just acquired HipChat, I think. Yeah, just post-HipChat acquisition, yeah. And I think you were two offices then? What, what? Yeah, we were across a couple of offices. It was, um, it was fascinating. I, I remember the end of my first few weeks being genuinely confused as to why they'd hired me. Um, I, I was literally walking around going, I, I, there's nothing for me to do because everything works. And, and what I realized was that my previous roles had been a lot of firefighting. Um, in more traditional or established companies going through a high level of change where they'd realized that there were there was an old way of doing things and they wanted to transition to a new way. And that that required a lot of fires and firefighting. And at Atlassian, we didn't have fires yet. And so thankfully, my boss sat me down, he's a, the VP of engineering at the time, and he said, I want you to take all the things you've learned in firefighting, reverse engineer what went wrong to create the fires and prevent those fires from occurring here as we scale. And I was like, wow, that is a huge leap of faith you're taking in me to be able to do that. And, and what he explained was, you'll get most of it wrong, but the stuff you get right will be invaluable. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized was there's a huge amount of unlearning I had to do because my habits that I brought with me weren't going to make me successful at Atlassian. So I had to unlearn those. That took a lot of ego transition, which was difficult, but I managed it. And then go and learn new ways of doing things. And the new ways of learning, the new things that I did, about half of them failed, but that was cool because mm -hmm. we were exploring and experimenting every time. So now I think you're about 2,500 people. And in the time since you've been there, you opened a dev office, I think, for Confluence in Vietnam, moved mm -hmm. those jobs back to Australia. Yeah. You've got uh, an office in the Netherlands, an office in Japan, an yep. office in the Philippines. I'm probably forgetting several. Along the way, what were the types of things that you guys had in those early days that you wanted to make sure to keep intact as you're reverse engineering? Yeah, it's a great question. So the the, it, fundamentally, the, the, the sense, the feeling of being autonomous and small, which kind of sounds obvious, but when you think about it, as you scale, uh, the things that creep in are, oh, we're a certain age now. Right? The company's 12 years old, we should grow up. I don't understand why a company 12 years, years old needs to grow up. I'm, I'm 39 and I've not grown up yet. And then this idea of we're a certain size, therefore we need a certain amount of structure and certain ways of doing things. And, and it's where a lot of, of really successful companies become mediocre. They become run-of-the-mill there. It's almost like innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. When they were small, they took calculated risks. They became successful. And then they had something to lose, so they became conservative. Right. And we were really nervous about that happening either on purpose or by accident. 
And so what we did was we said, we never want to be famous for being big, but we, we want to be famous for being awesome. So what does awesome look like? And then how do we find ways of building that? And the challenge was, I did what all good people would do. I went to the external literature because I thought, if someone's done this already, I'll quite happily copy, cut and paste it. And what I found was a lot of old school management techniques around scaling a business that were nothing to do with what we were trying to achieve. And they weren't focused on the people or the customer. Mm -hmm. They were focused on efficiency and scaling a business. And, it, and you kind of read Business in the traditional sense. Yeah, and it's just a little bit depressing. It's like sell your mojo, like lose all your passion and and and, and guile and, and mojo, uh, sell all that and just you know get, get yourself comfortable. And that wasn't the Atlassian business. So we, we decided to go and create our own way whether that be scaling offices, opening new locations, scaling our values and culture and our DNA, and then scaling our rituals, like our, our innovation rituals, which, you know, whilst they kind of look similar, yeah, you know, if you take Ship It as one of our innovation rituals, the first time we ran Ship It, there was 14 people in one location. Uh, we're doing Ship It 40 in a few weeks. So we're 40 incarnations on. Last Ship It, Ship It 39, we had something like 1,500 people taking part and 400 teams. So for those that don't know, talk talk to me about what Ship It is. It was FedEx days originally, it right? Was but was, there were some branding issues we, we there. We got a cease and desist, so no more branding for FedEx. So yeah, Ship It is a 24-hour ritual. It's all our team members across the globe get the same 24 hours, down tools, stop working on your normal backlog or normal work, form a team, and go and work on whatever you want for 24 hours. Kind of like a traditional hackathon on steroids because... It's not just for tech teams. Probably about a third of our teams that took part last time were non-tech, HR, finance, legal, marketing, sales, like a whole myriad of people that still have great ideas. And you hack away for 24 hours. The one rule is you get three minutes to, to pitch your idea at the end. And then voting and the prize is bragging rights. Like there's no massive dollar prize or, or big check. Uh, you get a really, really tacky kind of $3 trophy, but you get the plaudits of your peers. Yeah. Uh, and not just that, often if, if you get recognized for a great idea, you then get the opportunity to follow through on that idea and, and see it in the wild, which is a great motivator, intrinsic motivator for our people. That tradition has stayed with us now for years. The mechanism of how we do that is completely different when you've got 1,500 people across eight locations. Mm -hmm. So we've had to scale the logistical side of it, but we've kept the spirit and philosophy very, very similar. So what are the types of things, both maybe in product, but also the internal culture that have come out of that? Like, give me a range. Um, I think the internal culture ones are some of the most fascinating for me. They're, they're, they're never going to make a headline in a big business journal, but they're the ones that create incremental progress and drive real momentum in the business. One of the best examples I saw a couple of shippers ago, a team of newbies, various different backgrounds, some international, some local, different functions and roles, joined together with a program manager and a designer to rebuild our 90-day plan, our onboarding 90-day plan. They'd all gone through a 90-day onboarding recently, and they all agreed that whilst none of them hated it, because it actually was quite good, they were like, there's so much room for improvement. And having just been through it, they were the perfect people to change it. Now, you compare that to a traditional organization, you'd give that project to HR. HR, you own people and onboarding, can you change the plan? And in a vacuum somewhere, a really smart person would create a vacuumous plan that bore no resemblance to reality. We took five people that had just gone through that that were not HR people, and they rebuilt it. And then they scaled that. They tried it with a few people. It worked really well. That's now become our de facto standard. So wherever you join in the world, you're going to go through a similar 90-day onboarding experience. The great thing was one of them was in a, into gamification. So the 90-day experience is very, very engaging in how you go through the first 30, second 30, and last 30 days. And so it's just great to see that kind of stuff. When, when you're growing at the size we are, you're know, adding hundreds of people a quarter, 
something like a bad onboarding experience can make a massive impact, like not, not in a good way. And so getting that frictionless and engaging and, and building their passion and getting people effective quickly, that's, that's a huge positive impact to the business. Yeah, it's not that indifferent from onboarding someone to a product, which yeah. we talk about and concentrate on all the time. Whereas internal onboarding, it's usually just one of a laundry list of items for HR to get to. There you go. And when you when you get a, so one of the people on the team was a UX designer and we had a product manager on the team. So again, you wouldn't associate them with building a human 90-day onboarding plan. They have to think about onboarding of customers to our products every single day. So taking that analogy of onboarding to a product to onboarding to a company and building some of those, the, the kind of ethos from that, really, really valuable. One other thing that you guys had going on in the earlier part of your stint that I'm curious about is I think you guys were in the process of moving from a server-based business to more of a cloud-based business. Did that have an impact on your work when you got there? Yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting transition that we're going through. So yeah, the, the customer is paramount to, to everything that we do. And one of the things we were realizing was yeah, we, we were getting increased demand from our, our customers who wanted a cloud product right, for a whole lot of reasons. Our traditional kind of on-premises product just wasn't going to work for them in terms of a deployment method. At the time, what we were doing was we were almost thinking about those customers as the same. And then uh, it was only a small amount of research and, and that our kind of designers, product managers, and execs did. And we realized that the, the reason someone bought a cloud product, they were a different customer persona to why someone would buy an on-premises product. They had different concerns, different worries, different priorities. And so us delivering the same product, but just packaged differently, wasn't actually serving them. It was kind of serving us, but it certainly wasn't putting them at the center of the solution. And so a couple of years ago, we decided to, to prioritize how could we understand that deployment method and the different needs. So it's not that we've transitioned from a server business to a cloud business. We've just said the way you consume our products is different and we have to delight you. And the way we delight a cloud customer who may want features quicker and richness of integrations and the way they actually deploy the products and the way they, they use it versus our on-premises customers who are often larger at scale, who are worried about compliance and high availability. And so we're like, hang on, the priorities we'd make for you are different than the prototypes we'd make for you. If we mesh those together, we're going to make a really mediocre product. <laughs> if we try and delight you with the same singular product, we're like, neither of you are satisfied. And so what we've done now is we've separated those roadmaps to say, how can we understand the priorities of our on-premises server customers? And how can we delight them? And then how can we understand the priorities of our cloud customers and delight them? Uh, there's still a lot of commonality between the products. The, the job to be done is, is largely similar, but those things around the edges are now becoming different and mm -hmm. they're becoming different on purpose rather than by accident. And so as you guys went through that transition, I'm sure it shaped the way that you built your teams too. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk to me a little bit about how the R&D teams are structured today at Atlassian. What types of disciplines are involved? What's the size you try to keep teams at? Mm. So it's fascinating. So one of the things that uh, just just... I think all businesses go through this when you go through a, a change like that. You panic about all the things that will go wrong. It was weird. Our panic actually worked to our benefit because we ended up worrying about things and therefore mitigating them in advance. And so the actual change itself was relatively smooth. One of the things we learned was the differences between our teams are not that huge. The mix is still the same. So we care about cognitively diverse teams. So we have good mixes of designers, you know, UX, UI, uh, information architects, product managers, and engineers working together. When you get those diverse minds, you get brilliant products. The cognitive diversity. Cognitive diversity. Yes, we care about other levels of diversity as well, but we get the most amount of value from cognitive diversity. That's the same whether you're building on-premise or cloud. Yeah. Where there are differences is in the engineering skill set particularly. So if you look at the engineering that we need for cloud products, 
where we have a centralized platform, we're building many versions of the product, we're deploying many times a day. There is a different build and release cycle there compared to our server brethren, right? Who are often building series of features over a number of sprints and then deploying. The interesting thing is the thing that stays the same is the most powerful thing. We want to delight the customer. And so when you look at that, yes, your rhythm and cadence might be subtly different, but your mission is the same. And so what we found is, is that the differences actually are negligible. We actually have people that are trading across the two different teams where they'll go and work on our cloud teams for a period of time, learn something, and then they'll go and work on our server business because the, the, the nuance of that team, which is how do I communicate? How do I hold you accountable? How do I understand your roles and responsibilities? How do we spar and, and build great product experiences for our customers? That's the same regardless of which team you're in. What you need to learn is that local subdomain or expertise, which you can learn relatively quickly. We've built that into our onboarding, but with that's actually enabled us to keep even our most experienced people in our R&D teams moving across those teams. And that lateral movement is valuable for them and valuable for us. Yeah, it keeps everything fresh. Yeah. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So regardless of which team you're on, one thing that you guys I think have always been universally known for is culture at Atlassian. And mm. I think we read a lot now of tech companies across the board opening these quote-unquote innovation labs, oh, things like that, oh, which I can no. already see your skin crawl. Oh. <laughs> you, guys, you guys take a little bit of a different approach. I mean, what does innovation mean to you guys at Atlassian when you say you have a culture of innovation? Yeah, so so uh, the fundamental thing is we don't believe in the lone genius. And, and most people kind of get that, but what we believe is, is, again, that cognitive diversity. Great minds don't think alike. If you get like-minded people, you will get somewhere really quickly, but you won't want to be wherever you are. It, it will not be a nice place. And so... When, when you understand that, uh, yeah, there's a recent Ernst & Young report I read that said 90% of organizations are solving problems so complex, not complicated, mm -hmm. but so complex, they have to be solved by teams. Like one lone genius can't solve them. And we've taken that approach to our, to our innovation. The other part of that is, and, and this, is, this is where most people get a bit tetchy, the, the best ideas don't come from the most senior people. There is no correlation between tenure or age or, or any kind of other you know, old school traditional measures of seniority and great ideas. In fact, I think there might be a reverse correlation. Some of our best ideas come from our freshest people because they don't know what they don't know. They will break through walls that they did not know existed. As part of building that culture of innovation, we've taken a different approach to many organizations. So you mentioned the labs. They worry me, the idea that innovation is in a few and, and they can do that. They get so detached from the core business. They often 
aren't able to assimilate their ideas back in. Uh, innovation rooms are the other things I love to see in organizations. The idea that you need a physical space, a two by two, for people to go and innovate in on chalkboards and post-it notes. What um, does that say about the rest of the environment? Exactly, yeah, it's, it's worrying. And then the other one is is kind of the, the tokenist innovation, right? Uh, we're gonna have posters and t-shirts and, and we're gonna have a PowerPoint presentation. And that's often just to placate senior management and some kind of board uh, board of directors. So our way is innovation exists in everyone. My belief is you may have worked in an environment where innovation was beaten out of you. And so my job is to create a space that's psychologically safe for you, where you feel comfortable bringing your best self, bringing your innovative self. By building a culture of innovation and assuming that it exists in everyone, and it links to our value of be the change you seek, what we say to people is we expect you to innovate every single day. So we've, we've essentially got three pillars. Pillar number one is innovate every day, be the change you seek. If you see something you don't like, it's on you, you to fix it. Uh, you, it's on you. And that creates incremental innovation. You don't tend to get uh, rockets flying to the moon from that, but it's great momentum building. The second part is we do the more traditional kind of innovation week, 20% time. Uh, we, we recently released a play called Disrupt, which is how you get very divergent in teams before you converge. So how you get those random, brilliant, often crazy ideas and bring them back to reality. And a lot of our teams practice that. Some do one day a week. Some do one week every five, six, or seven. We leave it up to them to choose. And then the final ritual is, is the ship it ritual that I mentioned before, which is you work on whatever you want, 24 hours, and, and go wild. And what we find is it's a cycle. A lot of teams won't present a finished product in ship it. They'll present a concept, and then they'll use their 20% time of innovation week to finesse version two, version three, line. right? Uh, and, the, and they'll use the, their peers to actually spar on that and say, what do you think? And seek constant feedback. So it just creates this mentality of, you know, our world is not linear. It's not inputs, process, outputs. It's circular, right? It's very dynamic. And when you understand what you can learn from others and how you can get feedback to improve whatever you're doing, you get in this loop of practice and evolution that is way more powerful than, than any process. And that just builds this constant culture and expectation that what we did last quarter might not work next quarter. And it's okay to kill something that's working to do something better. Don't wait till it breaks. And that's just a different mindset. So I think a lot of our listeners, earlier stage startups, they probably have one office. Maybe it's a remote team and each one's in their own place. Mm. But in those scenarios, it's a lot easier to control these things. Yeah. So as you guys at Atlassian have opened up offices in places like Japan mm. or the Philippines or in Europe or San Francisco, Australia, all these places have very different identities and cultures themselves. So yes. how do you control this across the globe, but then also use it to your advantage too? Mm. Uh, so the first thing is uh, rid yourself of the fallacy that you can control it. Uh, you can't. In fact, it's probably the worst thing you can ever do. Um, the minute you try and control culture, you're trying to mani man manipulate something that is natural and organic, right? So it sets some really bad precedents and really bad practices in place. What we've done is the approach we've taken is our values aren't up for debate. Be the change you seek. Open company, no BS. You know, don't F the customer. Play as a team build with heart and balance. They are not up for debate. And so we hire for values in every location. There is a values interview as part of our hiring process. And that values interviewer has veto rights. So you could be technically amazing, but if you're an arse, we're not going to hire you. It's just plain and simple. And so what that does is it means that in each location, we are hiring people that are consistent with our values, but they will build their own subculture. And I'm cool with that because I want them to bring their local customs and culture to fruition because that gives us diversity again. And that, that's essentially very valuable. What we do is we say, as the values evolve, how do we tell stories to bring them to life? 
And what's fascinating is in each of those geographies and each of those subteams, you will find the way they share stories about our, our values are subtly different. Mm -hmm. And again, that makes sense that they're from a different background, yep. different experiences, and we embrace that. And so that enables us to scale that culture, but it's not really the culture that's scaling, it's the values that scale, and we have many, many cultures. Yep. So you kind of accept that you can't control it, but you can influence it, and the storytelling is our way of reinforcing it. So in many ways, you're, you're localizing your values. Yes, yeah. So the, the other issue then that comes into play is just the amount of people, and ultimately, at some point down the line, you're going to need a program manager. You're going to need progression paths for people that yeah. some of which will be IC routes, some of which will involve management. How do you maintain that culture of innovation when bureaucracy becomes a reality? Don't let bureaucracy become reality. I mean, you know, uh, I'm a fond reader of Gary Hamill. He talks about bureaucracy and debt that economy pays by, by having bureaucracy. There's, there are some elements of, of bureaucracy that are valuable. Most are, are steeped in 1920s ways of management and, and business. And the business I'm in isn't that. So we do everything we can to rid ourselves of bureaucracy. And, you know, I think about bureaucracy as friction. There's a whole lot of positive friction in my business, uh, similar to yours. You get a designer, product manager, and engineer on a whiteboard. They will argue the hell out of each other because they see the world through their own lens. That's positive friction, and we call it sparring. There's then negative friction, which is bureaucracy, process, sign-offs, business cases, all these things where you have to prove or substantiate what you're doing, and you spend more time justifying it than you spend doing it. And so that's just not valuable to me. So with career paths, what we've done is you know, most of our movements recently, we, we've opened a program around mobility to help people move into subtly different roles, where it's not the traditional climbing the corporate ladder, but it's getting breadth of experience, exposure, and having impact on meaningful work. So working on different products, or yeah. if you're an engineer working on different ends of the stack. Absolutely. So a whole of our platform people have transitioned into product roles. A lot of our product people have gone from one product to another. Some are working on brand new products. Some are preferring to work on, on older products and the evolution of those older products. It kind of doesn't matter. But what we're seeing is when they bring the richness of their historical experience and the fact that they have a different frame of reference and you glue that together with a whole lot of people that have great experience in that product or, or area, that creates genius. That creates friction where you, you create gold. Yeah, I think another thing I've seen that's been really effective there too is people that are actually enabled and feel comfortable moving from a management role back to being a contributor. Because often yep. the best contributors came from management and the best managers were recently on the coalface. Mate, we've, we've, we've done a bit of that recently and the, the value has been amazing. We had one of our senior dev managers who he'd been with us probably 10 plus years and he just turned around and he said, I have no desire to be a head of engineering or a VP of engineering. He said, I'm passionate about building amazing products that customers love. And like his kick, his his ego massage is when he sees a customer comment of, wow, that, that, that's what he, that's his re return, that's his reward. And so he moved, uh, you know, kind of laterally into an IC role where he got to go and build products again. And that made sense for everyone. He's amazingly happy. Uh, we're amazingly happy because he's building brilliant products. That's where his value proposition is. And our customers are even happier. So it's like, why wouldn't you? The thing that often gets in the way is bureaucracy, some kind of HR process that says, well, you can't do that. Um, I, I moved last year from running our program management team um, into, a, into an IC role because there was something I was passionate about, which was teamwork. And I wanted to solely focus on how we evolve teamwork. And I couldn't do that and run program management. So we had the conversation and it just made sense and we just did it. And and a whole of my mates were like, but w w hang on, you you had 14 people reporting to you and had this seniority in the position. I'm like, but none of that wakes me up in the morning excited. Mm -hmm. Like I don't roll over excited by how many people work for me. I roll over excited and energized to go and start my day's work because I'm working on something meaningful and impactful.
So recently your team published the Atlassian Team Playbook to yes. share a lot of things we've been talking about today. I want to make sure that listeners are able to check that out. What are they going to be able to find there and where can they find it? So what they'll find is a couple of things. Maybe I'll give the background. So as we were scaling, that kind of bureaucracy that you talk about was starting to creep in by accident. And we've never prided ourselves on being efficient. Like we're not producing widgets. We're producing experiences. So we want to be effective and we want to be relevant. And the playbook was born out of the idea of how do we get our teams to scale and stay autonomous without adding layers of management? Something that I'm sure your smaller businesses, they're growing, you can accidentally start adding layers uh, and they don't add any value. And so as we were doing that, we produced a whole lot of plays, ways that teams were working together that we felt made them more effective. The problem was there's no correlation between high IQ people and high EQ people. And similarly, you can't just learn self-awareness. And so what we added in was this, this idea of the health monitor. So scrappy Atlassian way, we looked at it, some successful Atlassian project teams. We looked at some teams that failed, that hadn't done so well. We looked at the attributes, what they were missing, what they had. And we landed on eight attributes that we believe make for a healthy team. The idea is if you have those attributes in abundance, you're more likely to be successful. It doesn't guarantee success. Stuff will still go wrong. There's still externalities. Context is always a little yeah. bit different. Um, I bribed the first team with coffee, uh, convinced the team lead. I bought the team coffee, got them in a room, ran a health monitor. He got me to do it for another team. And then over the next few weeks, I did about 100 with teams. And we'd run with this model internally for about two years. We have three team types that we focus on, project teams, uh, leadership teams, and service teams. So project, cross-functional team, start, middle, and end, shared goal, you ship something, product, experience, service, uh, and then you often disband. Leadership teams, uh, you are setting the North Star, the vision, the direction. You're there to be a coach and a mentor. And then ideally, stay out of the way. Uh, don't micromanage. Don't try and be smart. Go, go and lead, uh, but don't try and manage. And then service teams was something we landed on quite late, uh, the notion of queue management. Uh, you are providing a service to the organization and you're not necessarily owning your own backlog, but you have a queue that you need to respond to. How do you prioritize, but also how do you learn about the future so you can prevent things from going wrong, not just cure them. So our teams regularly at their own choice, their own rhythm and cadence, will run a health monitor exercise as a team. Low fidelity exercise, no tech, no laptops, no phones. Thumb up, good. Thumb sideways, not so good. Thumb down, you know, you're struggling. And they rate individually the eight attributes. And then they come together as a team and discuss that. It's great. You, you realize that everyone has a completely different view of what the team's great at and what they're struggling with. And as a leader, I find it very powerful to have my frame of reference challenged. And what I see is what I see and everyone else sees something different. Uh, and then we get them to pick one area to focus on. And then what we've done is we've linked the areas of the health monitor to the plays. So we've been running with that for about two years, sort of June, July last year. Mike and Scott, our founders, sat me down. They were like, this is awesome. We should do something with it. And within about 30 seconds, we decided to, to share it with the world, share it with the public uh, free of charge. So we packaged up the three health monitors and 26 plays in October last year, uh, launched them to the world. Um, they have got templates in them. So for Atlassian customers, they get a little bit more value by being able to use some some uh, templates that are available in cloud and server, but also we've made the templates available to anyone using any product. It's completely product agnostic. And the idea is we genuinely want teams to unleash their potential. Tools are good. You sell tools, we sell tools, uh, but a fool with a tool is still a fool. Uh, in fact, you've made them worse because you've made them faster. So how do you help that fool be more effective? It's practices. And what we've realized in the last few years is any organization, small, large, of any size and industry, if you're not evolving the way you work, you will not be staying relevant. You will not be effective. And the playbook enables us to stay relevant by assessing how we work together and finding singular areas to focus on to drive improvement 
and then we reassess and then we improve, reassess and improve. And what it means is we're constantly changing the way we work without ever having large scale transformations. We have no change managers. We have no transformation heads or transformation leads or change transformation programs because we're changing every single day. So what's just a quick and easy way someone listening to this show right now could walk away and go do a health check on their team? What's one thing they can look at and see this is something I can improve quickly? So what, what, what I'd say is is the easiest and best value way is go onto the Team Playbook website, so Atlassian.com slash Team Playbook. You will land straight in the health monitors. Pick your team type, so project team, leadership team, or service team. And in there is the template, the eight attributes, and an actual recipe card of how to run a health monitor session. Get your team in a room, no tools, and run that session. And the magic for you, if you're the person driving it, is to close your mouth and open your ears. It's often the hardest thing to do. What I say to leaders is, there's no value in you coming out knowing what you knew when you went in there. So so do so be more, more of an elephant and use the ears and less of a hippo. And so how can you just listen to what are your team doing well at? What are they struggling with? And then how as a team can you solve that? Again, a lot of leaders leave those sessions with a to-do list for themselves, and that's not the intention. How as a team can we drive improvement? For building self-awareness and focus, it's probably the most valuable tool or technique I've ever used. We've run over a 1,000 across Atlassian teams. I've also been fortunate in my work futurist role to run a whole load with external companies, large banks, government, small tech, startups, you know, of every type. And it's fascinating to see that, you know, no team's got it right, but the teams that take ownership of, of improvement and, and can have honest conversations about what they're struggling with, they're the ones that will be successful in the future. Well, before we can build better tools, we've got to build better teams. So. Absolutely. Dom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.